It was early in the morning. The principal talked to us, talked to the students and was like, yo, we are gonna send you guys home early today. And there was like protesters. There were people outside, at the, outside the private school, outside the mosque, throwing rocks at the school. They put us on these buses and they were able to bus us out. I turned around in the back of the bus and I just saw like this huge pillar of smoke. We thought it was a fire. Somebody was listening to the news and they were saying, well, look, the Muslims are attacking. I was 11, so don't quote me on that. But that's what it felt like. And that's what it sounded like to us. We did get home eventually. It's like still like kind of early, it's like noon. But my dad usually doesn't leave for work. I'm like, where's dad? And my mom's like, he's in New York. I'm like, what, is he gonna be able to get back? She's like, I don't know. He's working in that, in that same area, he was driving a cab. And we had no idea what was gonna, Happened. We turned on the TV and we saw people running for their lives. I, I was just looking, trying to scan, trying to see if I can see my dad, like see him running, see, see, see any evidence that he's still alive. And it was such a crazy feeling, not knowing if my dad was going to come home that night and that he was there in that area when those towers were hit. And that was one of the scariest moments of my, my childhood, man. It was crazy. Welcome to Inside the Podcaster Studio, an audio documentary series on the life story of podcasters. I'm your host, John Fry. Today we're covering the life story of Amon Ismail. He's got a really impressive resume, but there's honestly so much more to his story than just a list of accomplishments. He's currently a journalist at Slate, and when it comes to making stories, he doesn't do them to get them trending. He knows the stories that he, Eamon, is meant to tell. And he's able to get people comfortable enough to actually tell the truth and doesn't hold back on the ugly realities that he covers, but at the same time still manages to show the humanity in people when you least expect it. Now, his personal story is about a lot of things. Doing the most with the least, building your own education as a storyteller, Becoming the self-proclaimed Ray Charles of video editing because he doesn't even need to look at the keyboard. He's that fast at editing. But beyond all those things, this story is not just about someone finding their voice, but more importantly, what to say when you find that voice. And unlike our other episodes, today's story starts before Eamon was even born. My mom was one of 12, so she had a very big family. She had older siblings that had kids who were older than her. My mom was born in Alexandria, the port city in Egypt. It's known for its fish. There are delicious seafood restaurants all up and down the coast. It used to be really nice when she was around, uh, but since then, it's gotten a little crazy with the hotels and tourism and the traffic is just unbearable and unrecognizable to her. But she came from like a, you know, like a solidly middle-class neighborhood. I think she had like three brothers and like nine sisters. And so he was conscious of the fact that, you know, especially during those times, uh, a lot of women would set their, their goals to just get married and that would be their lives, you know? Um, they wouldn't really have high expectations beyond that for themselves. But he put it in their heads really early on that he wanted them to have an education. So she got, uh, she went to school, she studied language. Um, she learned English in Egypt. And, her, you know, a lot of her sisters are like doctors or, you know, nurses and uh, engineers. It's crazy. But my dad had a very different life in Egypt. My dad came from uh, a part of Egypt that people will call the Said, which is like the farms area. They call it Upper Egypt, and it's a lot less cultivated than where the cities are in Cairo. You know, he grew up on a farm. But at a really early age, he too uh, was sent to Cairo and to go live in the city in, in 
chase an education and try and become educated. He got a degree in engineering and he never went home after that. He found an opportunity to go to France and work on a farm there where he was working on this uh, like grape orchard where he was make, making grapes that was used for the French wine. Uh, you know, he grew up on a farm, so he knew all the, the farming techniques. So just off the bat, he turned into one of those migrant workers where even though he had a degree in engineering and he was like a sof very sophisticated guy, he, I think at that point, was immediately being conditioned into thinking that his labor was in his hands and that that's what he was useful for. But his family didn't, he, his family in, in Upper Egypt wasn't rich. So like a lot of families during that time, he would spend, he would send almost all of his earnings back home, almost all of it which is noble, uh, but then it's a little bit harder for him to set roots. But I don't know if that was in his mind. I think he was focused on helping his family, the unit back home. I think he found an opportunity to come to, eat, to, to, come to America after going to Rome and going to all these different European countries to, for, for, for his migrant labor. And then uh, when he got to New York, he lived in Astoria with six other roommates in this two bedroom apartment and so they had like these twin beds uh and he would work the night shift and he would sleep during the day in the same bed that the person working the day shift would sleep in at night so through the people he met at that apartment his dad started finding other work opportunities like working in restaurants driving a cab through new york and both his parents at this time found themselves in their late 20s very very far from home but they would very soon find something that would make them feel a lot closer to home. They found each other. It's time to get married. So my dad did what a lot of men did at that time. He just went to the mosque and asked the, the he asked the sheikh, the imam, the, the Muslim priest, if he could hook him up. <laughs> and dude was like, yo, actually, it's crazy. Somebody else just also asked me. And he was like, you should get in touch with this matchmaker. So he did. And the person Eamon's dad got in touch with was his mom. Well, not quite yet. His mom-to-be. <laughs> she answered the phone, and he was like, yo, I'm looking to get married. And she was like, uh, I guess I'm getting looking to get married, too. And that's, that's how it happened. So now they were both on the path to building their lives together. But of course, no true 80s New York love story would be complete without New York pizza. So my dad was working as a taxi driver at the time. When he, was, when he was trying to get married to my mom. And when they did get married, he, he was like, yo, let me take you to this really nice restaurant in New York. You're going to love it. It's Italian. And they get in his cab and she takes, he takes her to the West Village and they just go to this like pizza joint and they just stand on the curb and eat, eat some slices of pizza. And I thought that was really funny. There's like pictures of her in her wedding dress looking a little disappointed and them just going to town on these pizzas, which is really cool. It's a classic New York story, man. Eamon's parents were starting this really exciting new life together, but it was not going to be easy. His parents were grinding to send a lot of money back home and importantly, to send their kids to school. My dad, again, didn't have a lot of money and he was still spending a lot of money to Egypt to support his family um, in, in Upper Egypt. But he still, was, he still managed to collect enough money to enroll all of his kids in like a private Islamic school at the very start. And my mom took a job there as an Arabic teacher, which was really, you know, like noble of her to try and be like that close. It wasn't as fun when she was my teacher and, you know, she would not give me the, the better stickers when I got good grades because she didn't want other kids to think that I was being favored in any way. So she was very conscious of trying to be as egalitarian as possible in the classroom. But it was, you know, a little laborious to hang out with my mom at school and then get in the car and be driven back home and then hang out with my mom at home. It was a lot. It was a lot of mom time. But in hindsight, I owe her everything. It's amazing that she got that involved with our educations and, you know, um, really put her own ambitions aside and centered her, her children. And it's something that I, I aspire to, honestly. So Eamon was surrounded by kids in his shoes at school, being Muslim in America. But 
there's something special about being raised in the East Coast, specifically New Jersey. The first time I picked up a skateboard, I was really into The Simpsons, and I thought I could be like Bart Simpson because he was so cool. A lot of my friends were graffiti writers. I had a lot of friends who were, you know, um, just doing things that they weren't supposed to do, making noise, cutting fences open and sneaking into places, and just doing a lot of stuff that I thought was, you know, the true definition of freedom, where there were these get keep out signs and they'll be like, let's go in there. And my brother had bought a skateboard for himself, but he never wrote it. So I just took it from him and I would just hang out because I didn't know how to spray paint. I would just hang out with them and practice and, you know, fall and bust my ass. And, you know, it was funny, but I got better. The sound of the skateboards, it's so visceral. It's like a, it's so loud. And when you're with like five, six kids and we all have skateboards and we're grinding that pavement, it's, it's, it feels cool. You feel like you're part of a motorcycle crew. Like it's, it's probably the most free you can feel without breaking the law. <laughs> Cause you feel like you are, you feel like you're doing something that you're not supposed to. So 11-year-old Eamon loved these different facets inside of American culture, the TV shows, the music, the skateboarding, the list goes on. But while America had all these cool things in the different corners of its culture, America itself was built by and served being Christian and white, not being brown and Muslim. On a sunny September day, Eamon went to school with his friends on what would have been a totally normal weekday in the fall. But this day could not be more different. What would happen on this day would not only impact Eamon, but dramatically shape the way he, his family, and the entire Muslim community were perceived in America and beyond. It was early in the morning. It was like first period or second period, and we didn't know why, but the assembly was called in the private school in the, and so we met up in the prayer hall and we didn't know what was going on the principal had talked to us talked to the students and was like yo we are gonna send you guys home early today nobody knew why it wasn't until they told us that we couldn't leave the building that we knew something was up I remember one kid, he was wild. He was, uh, I think his name was like Hatim or something like that. He was like this Palestinian kid who didn't give a fuck. He tried to climb out of a window when somebody, when the teachers were like, you got to stay put. And so he got halfway out and he like saw what was going on. And then he climbed right back in. <laughs> we were like, yo, what is it outside that Hatim isn't even going out and running? And there was like protesters. There were people outside, at the, outside the private school, outside the mosque throwing rocks at the school, uh, at the Muslim school. And we had no idea why. We were like, what the fuck is going on? And all we heard was just like the pitter patter on the, on the windows of just like little tiny rocks pelting. So we were like, okay, let's stay inside. Eventually we went out through the back, through like the parking lot. They put us on these buses and they were able to bus us out. It was no problem. They sent us to another mosque in Jersey City where our parents were supposed to pick us up. And it wasn't until we got on the highway, the Skyway is what it's called in, in that area, where I turned around in the back of the bus and I just saw like this huge pillar of smoke, you know, a uh, huge, humongous pillar of smoke. And we had no idea why. We thought it was a fire. We thought it was just like a random fire. And somebody was listening to the news and they were saying, well, look, the Muslims are attacking. I think that's what they were saying. I was 11, so don't quote me on that. But that's what it felt like, and that's what it sounded like to us. The people who were driving us were really concerned and really quiet. And we, the kids in the back were like having fun. You know, we we're like, free day, we're gonna go to the park, we're gonna go get ice cream, you know, whatever, it's September. Uh, you know, but I, I ended up getting picked up by my mom. She picked me up and she picked up some other kids to try and drop them off on the way back. And we got stuck in this traffic and it was just crazy. It was crazy. We did get home eventually hours later, hours later, and the day was shot. Uh, but I remember still smelling the smoke like all the way in Newark, which is 
farther than Jersey City, farther than Teaneck, and farther than all these places that I was just at. And with the smell of smoke and the smell of fire was really present. And I was like, how big is this fire? Still have no idea what's going on. It's like still like kind of early. It's like noon. But my dad usually doesn't leave for work. He works the, the night shift. So he doesn't leave for work around like 3, 4 when I get back from school. And he's not here. He's not there. I'm like, where's dad? And my mom's like, he's in New York. I'm like, what, is he going to be able to get back? She's like, I don't know. He's working in that, in that same area. He was driving a cab. And we had no idea what was going to happen. We turned on the TV and we saw people running for their lives. There was like these huge clouds of debris that was just sweeping through, uh, pe covering people in debris and dust. And the only thing that I, I was just looking, trying to scan, trying to see if I can see my dad, like see him running, see, see, see any evidence that he's still alive. And it was such a crazy feeling not knowing if my dad was going to come home that night and that he was there in that area when those towers were hit. And that was one of the scariest moments of my, my childhood, man. It was crazy. And then uh, we got hungry. We were like, let's go to the store. And uh, my sister was going to come with me to like go to the KFC to go pick up some like chicken bucket or something like that. And uh, my mom was like, no, 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 you wear a hijab, you should stay home right now. And that's when I was like, oh shit, they really think that we had something to do with it. That's when I was like, okay, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go get this chicken bucket, but I'm gonna do my best to not look like I'm Muslim or whatever. Uh, you know, the next day my dad was able to get home. Uh, he, he actually evacuated, he like got on a ferry, abandoned his taxi, uh, obviously, and he, he uh, actually lost his job because of that. How crazy is that? That because he, he didn't bring the taxi back, they like blamed him for it. And, um, you know, it was like a weird time. It was a weird time. This obviously changed so much in America at the time. George Bush was gearing up to go to war. Fear around terrorism was at an all-time high. And suddenly, Eamon's parents had to reconsider whether or not it was a good idea to keep him in Islamic school or not. A couple days pass and the schools don't reopen. Uh, my mom is starting to wonder if it even makes sense to send me to the Muslim school anymore. She knew about the protest. I wasn't doing that well anyway. I was getting kind of bad grades. So she was like, maybe maybe it's time we just like transfer this kid out. Uh, so all my siblings transferred out. We all went to public school. You know, imagine it was just like just after 9-11, a couple days afterwards. And like you're standing at the front of the class and they're like, hey, hey, Eamon, tell us where you're from and, uh, and tell us a little about yourself. And I'm like, yeah, I'm Muslim, I'm Egyptian. You know, there's, there's a little paranoia in your heart where you think maybe people might associate what just happened in their own backyard with you. Uh, but that didn't happen. You know, people just really, they understood. They understood that we were just people like them. And if anything, they, they thought it was cool. They thought it was badass. You know, they would make jokes like, oh, Eamon the terrorist, oh, don't blow us up. Uh, but, you know, I'd make those jokes back. <laughs> the good news was Eamon found his school and he was able to find his community, his tribe at his new school. But as he was heading into high school, like many of us, he started building new interests, creative ones, and he started chasing them. So when I got pulled out of the school, I went to this public school called Eastside High School, and it was bananas, man. There was It's a Newark public school. And in a, in a city like Newark that's black and brown that gets no funding, you know, you can imagine. Like all the textbooks are torn up. We have teachers that are cutting more class than students. They lock you in. <laughs> you got to go through security. You got to get padded down. You have to go through metal detector. And then once you're in, they lock the doors. And, and, and combine that with teachers who don't give a fuck. You're, you're in this school for like eight hours and you just have like nothing to do. So there was this art teacher who was young. He was like in his late 20s uh, and, and he taught art and he had like the dopest classroom. We'd be hanging out, like painting on the walls, doing like making stencils so that we can go outside and spray paint them later. And he was cool. He was down with it. Like he was, 
like I, we all thought he was like one of us and so he had like this one mac computer in the back you know and a lot of my friends were really nice with their hands like they could paint they can draw like they can do like really talented man like crazy talented i was not talented in that way I couldn't draw, I couldn't freehand. That's why I was making stencils. I was just like really interested in like this Mac computer. And it was like the only one in the whole neighborhood. And so I was like, I wanna like see what's up with that. And it had uh, Final Cut Pro, which is like the editing software. And I thought it'd be like really cool to like take videos that were already online. You know, I was using like LimeWire to download music videos and you know, using Kazaa to download movies. And I would like cut them up and like mess with the buttons. And I thought it was like really funny to like play things back. Like it was just really cool to have that software and like learn how to use it. Uh, the teacher was with it. He thought it was really cool too. So he was able to get us a camera. And so it was just me and my friends sitting around messing with these cameras and like doing cool shit. The teacher's like, yo, you, you there's like this film festival that's gonna be happening soon. You guys should make something. We were like, why not? That sounds like a lot of fun. So I was like, shoddy editor, let me just do the editing. And somebody else was like, I'll do the cameras. Somebody else was like, I'm gonna do the lights. I'm gonna do the, the sound. I mean, everybody just had their role. And we were like young professionals. We would show up first period, sit in that classroom and stay until three o'clock. Sometimes after school, we wouldn't even leave when we were allowed to. And we just sit in this classroom all day working on it, you know? The Iraq war had just started. My brother had a friend who joined the military. Uh, my brother's like four years older than me. And literally on his first tour, within like the first month, his convoy was attacked and he died. Young kid, really young kid. He was a teenager and uh, he had a kid. And so we knew about how this kid now is, is gonna grow up without his dad, a little baby, you know, and, and how like this family is just, you know, left to pick up the pieces and how the war was everything that everybody was talking about. But I was like, yo, this is impacting our community in a really unique way. We should we should tell that story. So we all agreed. We, we went and did interviews with the teachers who knew him, with the students who knew him. We talked, we got into his house, we like filmed with his parents, we filmed with his wife and his baby. And it was really emotional. It was really emotional. And we filmed maybe like six, seven hours of footage. And so I was editing it and I was cutting it together and, you know, really trimming the fat, cutting out the ums, adding B-roll, making it feel like, like something I would like to see on TV, something that I would want to watch. And it came out sick, man. It came out awesome. Eamon didn't know it yet. But he had just had his first real taste of documenting, of storytelling in a really major way. Taking this raw idea and then creating art that could send a message. And he wasn't the only one that was excited about it. And so it was time for the film festival. It was at the New York Public Library. And it was between schools. So all the other films were student films. Uh, it must be because we spent all day, every day on it, that ours was just like cinematic, you know? Ours looked great. Everybody else's looked like shit. <laughs> and they might they might have had actual class to go to. Maybe that's why. So Eamon and his friends are now sitting in the crowd filled with anticipation. You could just feel it in the air. And the time has come for the announcers to reveal who the winners were. So they stepped up to the podium and started by announcing third place. We got third place, and then we got up, we took our trophy, and we were so excited, we sat back down. And then it was like second place is Eastside, and we were like, what? How are we gonna get second and third place? We were like, oh, that probably makes sense because they didn't want to give us first. And then we go up and we take our trophy, we sit back down. And then they're like, first place is Eastside, and we're like, what? They gave us all of the trophies, man. It makes no sense. There were only like four or five different entries. Like they could have spread it out, right? They gave all three to us, which is crazy. I personally think it was the right call, you know? Um, <laughs> that's what they did. And uh, we were in the Star Ledger, the, which had a, I think it was based in Newark at that time. So it was like a big deal. We were like in the big city paper. 
and they had like a picture of us all holding the trophies inside the classroom. The teacher is the one holding the trophy and it's all about how good of a teacher this guy is. And he really like connects with the students. It was sick. People liked the fact that we were like making these films inside, inside the class. And you know, everybody was trying to be in on, in on that program after that. And I think now to this day, the high school is officially a magnet school for, for TV production and film. We were part of the first class to do something, and it was really just because we wanted to do something. We thought we had just won the Oscars, man. That's how it felt. For the first time, I thought like I felt like I knew what I wanted to do. I was like, I'm gonna graduate from high school. I'm gonna get into like a art film program and become like a movie director or become like a movie editor. And then I got into college. Not a lot of people from where I come from go to college. And I was like, I'm gonna get into this art program. I'm gonna get into this film program. And I did. First day of school, go in, I'm really excited. I got my Mac computer, I'm ready to go. Orientation was sick. And then they're like, oh, by the way, we don't have a film program anymore. Can you imagine that, man? Can you imagine my disappointment? So I ended up staying because they were like, we can't refund you the tuition. You either gotta stay in the art school and study something else in the art school or withdraw and apply again in like the next semester for something else. I'm like, you guys already took my money, so I'm gonna stay. I was like, I'm gonna study something that's gonna help me become a better editor. So I studied color and I studied um, like video art, which is like not film, but like we studied like the history of how video was used in art. Again, like the east sideness kicked in where because it wasn't real classes, uh, and my homework was just like doodling. I was able to use the time that I had to get a job in film, in video. And so I was on this website called mandy.com, taking whatever PA jobs were open, you know, $100 a day gigs, $150 a day gigs, you know, making all these connections with people who were doing these big gigs for like Disney and GE and, you know, big time commercials and stuff. So it ended up being like a blessing in disguise. I became friends with this really dope director named Corden Wagner. Was a fucking cool ass dude. And so he kind of like put me under the wing and he was like, what do you really want to do? I was like, I want to be an editor, man. And so he was like, can you, do you know how to use Final Cut? I'm like, hell yeah, I'm, I'm amazing at it. I'm the best you've ever seen. And so he gave me a shot. He was like, well, I need a daily and my editor just is too busy. So I'm like, okay, uh, what's a daily? <laughs> and so he explained it. He's like, it's just a cut down of some of the best takes of whatever we shot that day so that we can send it to the benefactors. I was like, oh, that's easy money, let me do that. He was like, okay, well this is $400 a day. I'm like, cha-ching, hell yeah, I'm gonna do this. And uh, I killed it, you know? I was done with the daily in like four hours when he gave me the whole day to do it. And after that, he was like, okay, you actually really know what you're doing. You know how to do this fast. I was like, yep, I know all, all the keyboard shortcuts are, man. Like a few weeks later, he's like, actually, I need an editor for this job. He's like, I'm not gonna pay you full though. He's like, cause you're not like a real editor yet, but I'm gonna give you a shot. It's like this thing for Nivea. But he's like, all right, I'm gonna pay you this day rate. It could be, be it could be a double, a couple days. I walk in with something to prove. I'm like, I could do this in a day. So I do, and I knock it out. And he's like, no way, it, no way it's done after eight hours. And he sat down, he looked at it. He's like, this is exactly what I wanted. Perfect. So he paid me one day, a portion of one day's rate, the motherfucker. But he would end up giving me uh, a lot more opportunities to, to build my resume and to make a lot more cool shit with like real brand names like Disney that really helped me a lot in the future. Eamon was able to learn everything on his own and make his own connections. He built his own degree from the ground up and graduated with flying colors. Every single company wanted to work with him when he started applying. Many of us have that moment, you know, when you start looking for your first job after college. But Eamon, of course, already had lots of experience. His first full-time job after college was... So I got this job as this bullshit editor in Soho at this really garbage company called Howcast. Naturally, he wanted out. I wanted to make something that felt good, that looked good, that made people want to see it over and over again. And I thought commercials was the best way to learn some of the coolest tricks, because the way that I see it, music videos is like the most experimental that you can get with video editing. 
and then right beneath that tier is advertising and then beneath that tier is like movies so i'm like if i want to get into movies i got to get into either music videos or advertising and i was like but there's probably a lot more money in advertising so i'm just going to do that and so i had a friend who worked at an ad agency called mother and he was like yo they're hiring for this magazine that they just bought they just bought this magazine called Animal New York and they're looking for a one-man band, somebody who's entrepreneurial, who can go find the stories, do the interviews, and then shoot it, make it, cut it down, and then polish it. I'm like, that's me, baby. Let me do that. I can do that. And I can do it quick, too. They loved that. They loved the fact that in the interview, I was like, I'm the fastest editor you've ever met. Like, nobody's faster than me. I was like, they call me Ray Charles when I'm like sitting at the keyboard because all I'm using is the keyboard and I don't even touch the mouse when I'm editing. So they hired me to do video editing. In that sense, it was like video reporting. But I thought, okay, I want to get into advertising. But if I start working at this magazine, which is owned by an advertising agency, which is the offices inside the ad agency, That'd be a really easy way for me to make friends and like eventually make that transition. They're going to see how amazing I am and then they're going to hire me. That's what I thought. I worked at this magazine and they're just like the coolest fucking people on the planet, man. The editor is this dude named Bucky Turco, who is the funniest, most coolest dude I've ever met. He'll sit there and just blast reggae in your ear and like be shouting at you about this crazy headline that he saw in the New York Times and like some stupid guy that he's arguing with on Twitter. And it's just like the most fun you've ever had. It's just like the coolest people. And his ideas are wacky, man. He's like sitting there, he's like really into weed and he smokes weed in the office and nobody cares because that's just him. Now, this was the work environment that Eamon wanted. And he got to work on something that gave him life. I was taking pictures of everything, man. I was just like meeting all kinds of crazy people. Uh, I take pictures of this dude who like cut open his hand, did surgery and like injected an RFID chip to have like a digital tattoo. I was doing interviews with this one dude who would steal street signs that would say like Malcolm X Boulevard or Marcus Garvey Avenue and he would sharpen them and like he would do metalwork and turn them into swords and spears. And, it was fucking cool, man. It was sick. And like being in that studio with all those sounds and metal and taking these pictures, it was the stuff I would never have access to otherwise. I've, I did a project on the dude who would make fake keys for subway doors, you know, so people can get into the subways while they're closed and paint them. <laughs> it's fucking crazy. He was literally given this all access pass to the culture of underground New York. But there was one story that took him above ground. One of my biggest obsessions and his biggest obsessions was graffiti. And a lot of my friends were graffiti writers, so it was just, it felt natural to hang out with these graffiti writers and they trusted me. They let me take pictures of them while they were doing something illegal in a place that was illegal. That was just like the vibe for like three years for me. I was just going from graffiti crew to graffiti crew, making these crazy videos, these illicit documentaries. And after three years, the ad agency that owned Animal was like, hey, you're really talented. We really want somebody like you on the team. We can offer you a lot more money to do some editing for us. And I was like, I'm good, actually. I, I like being out in the field every day. I like just seeing what sticks and just talking to crazy people who have the craziest ideas and making documentaries about this guy who throws parties in caves or making documentaries about this guy who's just so into hip hop that he goes on a tour to visit all of the different corners mentioned in a rap song. Eamon had found his dream position. Why would anyone ever give that up? But sadly, there would be a day that he had to leave, but not by choice. So at a certain point, the advertising agency that was paying all of our salaries, who was very supportive, by the way, of everything that we were doing, at a certain point, they were like, why are we doing this? Why are we spending, it was like a million dollars a year on this magazine that's netting us zero. Now, don't get me wrong. They were able to create these incredible cultural moments, but unfortunately that just wasn't enough at the end of the day. They, they did it for like five years. They, in my opinion, did everything they could to keep that magazine running. But at a certain point, 
that's just what needed to happen. The magazine needed to move on. And so they had found uh, a new sugar daddy. There was like this other company that had paid for Animal for like a year to see if they could make that work. But then the traffic was never gonna be able to compete with some of the other magazines that were like so appealing and so broad, where it was like just about music or just about the news in the city. But for something that's so specific, like the graffiti underbelly culture of New York City, that if you asked anybody was absolutely 100% worthy of documenting, it just didn't have the kind of appeal that cat videos do or aggregated content about whatever it does. So the magazine got sold, scrapped for pennies, stripped down. That was like, this is a blessing in disguise for me. I have this humongous portfolio of all these small five minute documentaries that I've made and a lot of them had one million hits and I can make, I can still do this. I, I hit up Gothamist, I hit up Uprocks, I hit up Complex, all these different New York City art focused magazines to be like, look, I'm the guy, let me make your videos. But after like a summer, I was like, uh, maybe I should just like open this up and apply to whatever video jobs that are available. And I applied on a whim to Slate Magazine, which at that time I thought was too prestigious for someone like me and that they would want someone more buttoned up and polished. They called me back for an interview and it was dope. I rolled my skateboard in. I had like my t-shirt in the back of my mind. I'm like, they're not gonna hire me. Slate is like the New York Times of magazines. There's no way that they're gonna hire me. They're like getting interviews with presidents and like Supreme Court justices. They're way more serious than anything I've ever done. I go in and the editor-in-chief meets with me and is basically asking me all these questions about Egypt and asking me all these questions about my family and just having this candid conversation about nothing to do with journalism. I was like, this is actually really cool, but did you learn anything from me? And she's like, yeah, no, it's fine. And then I met with the managing editor, dude named John Swansbury, who's super cool. He was talking to me about like music. It was just weirdly casual and a lot less formal than I was expecting. And then a week later, I was on, I was at Coney Island because it was the summer and I was bored. And then I got a phone call saying, hey, we'd like to hire you. We want to make you this offer. And I'm like, what? Slate wants to hire me? That's crazy. Like a lot of those writers are like doctors or have like law degrees. They want this like, street art kid <laughs> it's so weird it, it, it still doesn't make sense to me but i'm really glad that they they took that chance one thing i never told anybody was that same day i got another phone call from that ad agency the one who, who had bought animal and sold it the one ad, ad the ad agency that i've been wanting to work at and that's the whole reason why i got into journalism in the first place and i i was one of the partners who called me so like one of the top dogs. And he goes, I think you're really special. You got like a lot of talent and you also have like this really great energy and you, you, you really remind me of me as a kid. Like, I think we would be crazy not to hire you. He's like, are you still looking for a job? We'd pay you this much. And it was like six figures. And I was like, oh shit, like that's real money. And I was like, I'm sorry, but I can't. I told him, look, I just, just got an offer from Slate Magazine. I have an opportunity to, to continue being a journalist and working at a magazine where people will read my stuff. I told him, I'm realizing now that I'm a storyteller and I've still got stories to tell. And I know that sounds corny, but to him, he got it. He understood. He was like, you know what? I think that's the right choice. He was like, but think about it. He's like, because we can be making like some cool ads together. And I thought about it. I, I still want to be out in the street. I still want to be talking to people. I still want to be sharing stories. I want to be telling stories. And I just want to be outside. Eamon's mind was made up. He told the ad agency he was going to work at Slate. I was still looking for that feeling of fulfillment now that I've like doubled down on being a journalist. So I was like, what is going to benefit me the most? And what is going to stick around and help other people the most? What's worthy of telling stories? 
I really wanted to try and, and paint the clearest picture of what it was like to be Muslim in America. So I had set, I had set the intention to not only talk to Muslims, but to make it as interesting as possible. I was like, I'm also going to talk to people who were part of the Muslim American story. And in a lot of cases, those were people who were anti-Muslim or people who were trying to you know, convince people, large swaths of people that Muslims didn't belong or that were terrorists. And, and I really liked interviewing those people because it was so satisfying for me as a Muslim to see them finally be asked the right questions from mm. people who were giving them attention and talking to them. For the first episode, it was like a pilot episode. We still weren't sure if we were going to do this as an expanded series. I emailed this guy named Jim Hoft off the off chance that he might want to talk to me. And so he's he runs this website called The Gateway Pundit. He has... White House, press credentials. He's taken seriously in the right wing as like this credible news source. He's anything but, right? It, all of his articles are basically like these racist screeds where he reduces POC to their entire race or their entire religion and then frames it like that being like, this is what Muslims want or this is what black people want. And they're waging these like silent wars and they're using the left's weak wokeism as a way to infiltrate. So he invites me to his house. I thought I was gonna die. We pull up into his driveway and it's like a mansion. It's like this big, beautiful house. My heart is pumping. It like starts raining dramatically. Like I feel like I'm in a horror film. Like, we're going to go in and this guy, like, knows I'm Muslim. He's going to, like, ambush me and kill me. So I go in. It's, like, me uh, and my my editor. I felt safe around him because he could be, like, my bodyguard or something. I was like, all right, if anything happens, my editor will just ragdoll this fool. And that'd be it. You know, he was really courteous and welcoming. He was like, oh, hey, welcome. You can set your stuff over here. What room would you like to film in? I walk in and I and we're, like, rolling already. Cause just in case he was an asshole, we wanted to use that. And there is this statue like a statuette that's like three foot tall of what has to be this muslim with a scimitar like those curved swords and a beard like striking like at the neck of this like christian woman because she has a halo and she's like praying with her hands pressed together and it's so violent and graphic and it's golden and it's in his living room that's the first thing i bring up I'm he goes, yeah, it's really nice, isn't it? Yeah, I got it at this auction. <laughs> so what is it of? And he's like, yeah, it's a, you know, a Muslim king who was like married to this Christian woman, and then she like didn't want to obey him, so he killed her. And I was like, oh shit, like this guy's crazy. Anyways, we sit down, we start talking. I start asking him questions about his past. He grew up Catholic, and he's gay. So I'm like, did you ever feel? Like, you couldn't be yourself when you were growing up. And he was like, yeah, I wasn't ever accepted to, for being gay. And, you know, it was dangerous. They might kick you out of the community and they would never respect you or treat you the same again. We started talking about that. And I was asking him questions about, like, what he knows about Islam and how he's so confident in reporting that uh, Muslims want to kill gay people, just generally. I'm like, you know, there are like Muslims in ISIS who are killing gay people, but there are also like Muslims in the Kurdish army who are trying to fight and like destroy ISIS. How do you reconcile those two things? And he was like, yeah, I just, it's hard for me to say I know anything about Islam at all. And, and he was like, look, I'm scared. Like I meet Muslims like you and I like you and you seem like you're very personal, but like, I don't really know what's going on. And to get this guy who is so influential, who has access to the president, to say candidly that he has no idea what he's talking about when he's right talking about Muslims was so refreshing. And I couldn't believe that all these people who have done interviews and spoken to him and have done like profiles on the Gateway Pundit and how hateful it is and all like, how has nobody ever gotten it out of him the fact that he is like totally ignorant when it comes to the religion that he spent mm -hmm. so much time talking about? Like I was willing to ask hard questions and like put people in these positions where they needed to like dig deep and search for answers. In showcasing that talent and showing people that I can cut through the BS and pull in like real human mo moments out of these interviews with sometimes people who are being combative, that that's worth 
exploring further, especially when it comes to telling the story of being Muslim in America, where, you know, uh, it's just these two sides who are constantly dehumanizing each other, who refuse to recognize the humanity in each other. This moment, making the series, was the culmination of everything that Eamon had done, from learning lessons of how to edit video like Ray Charles playing the keys, to discovering his love and calling in journalism at Animal New York. Now, as creators, journalists, podcasts, etc., we're sometimes lucky enough to come across opportunities like the one Eamon had here. And I really want to say two things. One is applaud Eamon for following his heart here and going to work with Slate and just making this happen. And two, this is a great example for me and any of you listeners to follow. Our time will come for these great projects. We have to follow our hearts and really listen because the world can easily distract us. But when we do follow our hearts, beautiful things happen. Speaking of projects, Eamon did eventually make his way to the wonderful world of audio. And I mean, after all, this is inside the podcaster's studio. I'd be remiss if we did talk about a podcast. And Eamon's journey to audio brought him to a new and different subject than Who's Afraid. Man Up is a podcast that I thought would be like the natural progression to, to kind of come to as a journalist after doing Who's Afraid. Uh, Who's Afraid came to an end. I could have been making episodes forever. It's such, a, it's such a ripe topic. But I wanted to do something that also felt like it was in the same universe as far as having like these tough conversations in like a very humanizing way. So I, I, came, to, I came to thinking like, what else can I talk about that has such a fluid meaning and and it felt like there was no real way to ever really define it or understand it like religion but also people were very passionate about i was trying to take a step away from religion i wanted to do something different that felt different i don't want people to think that's like the the podcast version of who's afraid so i was like let me just do something that's in that same vein that that focuses on my uh, on my talent and my 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 ability to do interviews, where I'm able to pull the, the humanity out of people, and then uh, storytell, and so that was it. I was like, that's perfect. I got, I, I should do one about masculinity. And Eamon has a friend, Abed Awad, who is a law professor at Rutgers and is an expert in Sharia law, essentially Islamic law. He had this incredible dictionary. It was about a thousand years old, and if you think about Shakespearean English, this was basically the dictionary for that version of Arabic. He showed me this page that had defined what a man is, a rajul. At first, it feels like one of the most basic words, but the definition is literally a half page long. Like the definition is like one who rides a horse or one who gets down from his horse or one who draws his sword or one with male characteristics, or one who is uh, male with male characteristics, or one who is male with female characteristics, or one who is female with male characteristics. It's like not defined by gender in a really interesting way. And I thought that was like so interesting. This is such a unexplored category of journalism where we haven't really sat down and thought aggressively about what the fuck is a man. So Eamon created this incredible series with that inspiration. He covered topics like, can you have a healthy porn habit, the hashtag men are trash, male birth control, the Valentine's Day scramble, the list goes on and on. It's a really thoughtful show that approaches many topics that oftentimes us men don't think about, but should. Now, sadly, the show has concluded, but you can find it and listen to it by searching Man Up wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I highly recommend you do. So, we've been through a lot in Eamon's journey. And as Eamon and I came to the end of our conversation, I wanted to know at this point in his life, after everything he's done, what was the mission he feels called to do today? Being in a place like Newark, where you really just have to make the most of your situation and do the best you can to protect yourself and survive, taught me that the world is saturated and everybody wants your job and everybody wants to do what you're doing. So you really need to figure out what you're good at and you need to just focus on that and carve out your own little space. 
my goal right now is to get better at the stuff that I'm already the best at. And that right now seems to be journalism. And journalism is fun and exciting and it feels good and it doesn't feel like work, which is why I love it. And that's why I'm never going to stop doing it. Um, but like journalism is an extremely saturated field. So what are my strengths? I can get people to be themselves around me. You know, I can uh, ask hard questions, but also in a, in a disarming way so that you can tell me the truth and not feel like you have to put up a front or keep it real. You could just be real. So that's that's what my goal is, is to try and tell stories that feel real, that ring true for people, and also that can teach me something about the world. Like, I don't really care, to be honest with you, about like convincing the world that Muslims aren't terrorists. I know we're not terrorists. Muslims know we're not terrorists. If you think that now, that's on you. I don't care if somebody has a problem with the Prophet Muhammad. That's not going to prevent me from learning from his story. Being an orphan in a society where it's all about who your dad is. This guy was able to revolutionize his whole society and teach this incredibly patriarchal society who only cared about blood and bloodlines to consider the world their family, to rejigger the economy to like a socialist one where it took care of the most vulnerable. I'm just trying to tell the stories that only I could tell. And that in, that in, in this moment, it happens to be Islam. A couple years ago, it was about masculinity. Right now, it's, uh, it's about something else. You know, it's about whatever, whatever stories I think only I could tell. And that's why I think, uh, you know, being Muslim is a blessing despite having to deal with harassment from the police, despite having a judge threaten to deport me, it's taught me that it's really not up to me to try and fight them or to make them wish that they never said those things or never wish that they followed me or chased me or whatever. It's, it's really about like focusing on the things that I can control and trying to create a safer, more viable situation for myself so I can do the same for people. This episode was edited, scored, and sound designed by Dominic Brown, Izzy Reganzani, Jay Jackson, and me with special assistance from Travis Loafman. Special thanks to Sarah Omar, Jennifer Park, Jake Winbun, and Divin Durr for their help on this episode. This show is executive produced by Luke Himmelsbach and is hosted by me, John Fry. If you liked what you heard, we would love it if you went to Apple Podcasts and left a five-star review. It helps more than you know. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode.